Hello and welcome to Your Active's AgriFood podcast. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. I'm Julia Dam. And I'm Natasha Fett. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Your Active's AgriFood team. So this week, of course, all eyes have been on Ukraine and the ongoing war that is occurring there. And uh, it's no different in the agri-food sector that stands to be really impacted um, by this war. Yeah, indeed. I was um, I just come from um, a quick talk with uh, our senior editor, Georgi Godev, and uh, we were discussing. It's actually my first war as a reporter, I, I know that I'm not there uh, in Kyiv, um, but actually, even from the point of view of reporting uh, from Brussels, um, it's having a lot of uh, impact on the mm. agriculture sector, but also on uh, on um, when it comes to health, for instance. And uh, as our listeners know, we, we're also dealing with the health policies. Um, and of course, the US agriculture sector uh, stands to be hit quite hard in the coming weeks, uh, squeezed between the kickback of sanctions to uh, Belarus and Russia and the reduced trade from uh, Ukraine. Uh, let's recall the fact that Ukraine alone accounts for 19% of EU uh, wheat imports and 13% of oilseed uh, imports. So mm. uh, this could have a huge impact, for instance, on uh, the um, uh, livestock uh, sector. It's very difficult to, it's going to be very difficult for the um, EU farmers uh, to cope with that. And um, and also, I mean, this, uh, as I said, also the sanctions. It was approved uh, on uh, Wednesday, a new package of sanctions against uh, Belarus uh, that basically uh, banned every type of potash, which is um, uh, one of the three main chemical nutrients uh, used in commercial fertilizers, the other are of course phosphate and uh, nitrogen and uh, and potash was already targeted by the sanctions against Belarus in June but now it's basically uh, the EU basically extended to all kind of imports of this product um, the ban and uh, and this of course has a big impact uh, in 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 an already going uh critical situation when it comes to the uh, prices of inputs um so this of course uh, led to some kind of uh, speculation uh, first speculation then uh because i mean on monday there was the comagri meeting the agriculture committee at the european parliament where mep started um thinking of uh, rethinking of the the goals of the the green deal when well i mean the main topic of conversation was that this ukraine war has put food security back into the spotlight and then there were a couple of MEPs that also then put into question maybe the eu's green goals and that's something we've also been hearing from farmers associations associations this week you know how wise it is to pursue these green goals where you know they're saying that the the lens and the focus should be shifted 
purely to food security. And that's really what, I mean, that was the very, that was the emerging theme from the, uh, from the meeting this week in the Agri-Committee of the European Parliament. Um, it's for sure put it back on the, on the menu. Yeah, and, and a confirmation of that, uh, in particular of the fact that the Commission is mulling over um, looking again at the objectives of uh, both farm-to-fork and biodiversity mm. strategy uh, yeah. in, in a different light, which is the light of the food security. Uh, again, this confirmation arrived after the extraordinary meeting of EU ministers um, on, on Wednesday. So the, the um, Agricultural Commissioner Janusz Wojciechowski basically said that um, we need to keep a close eye on the objectives of these policies in the context of food security, which is not something new. He already said that uh, two years ago, in uh, speaking before MP, French MPs. Um, mm. But of course, the context um, completely changed. Um, mm. Yeah, you view the words a bit differently considering yeah. considering what's happening. Indeed, indeed. I mean, it's uh, there's signals of market disruptions um, when it comes to, for instance, commodities, uh, but also input prices, as we said before. And, um, and of course, we don't know the, the outcome. I mean, we don't know when the situation will end. Uh, just to make an example, even the humanitarian activities at European borders and in Ukraine could result in, in some kind of increased demand uh, for food stuff. So um, at the same time, there's the gas prices at stake and, um, and uh, this could drive a further increase in, in, in uh, world prices and this further increase uh, could lead to, um, could affect the entire agri-food sector. So, um, it's something that will definitely be um, on the agenda again, uh, the, the, the topic of food security. Um, and it's actually, um, I mean, for some, it was also uh, an excuse for, for uh, particularly for the industry, uh, to bring back the topic. Um, but again, at the same time, Wojciechowski himself um, ensures that, uh, reassures that uh, they don't want to toss these strategies aside. They just want to um, consider other elements given the current situation. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, um, Let's see where we're going to, yeah. Something that I don't think civil society are going to be very happy about. Yeah, yeah. I think it's safe to say after years of pushing back on this kind of narrative and, and, and also gaining some ground with this because, you know, there was Commissioner Sinkevich's that at one point said, yeah, food security is not an issue anymore. And, you know, everyone was kind of rejoicing a bit of the civil society were rejoicing in terms of their, their narrative kind of coming through and... Now, uh, now but, I will be. I don't think they're going to be particularly happy. No, but, but I mean, again, it, this is also one of the arguments of uh, not only of NGOs but also of Wojciechowski. So, I mean, if you um, have this issue with the increase um, price, uh, um, increase input price, uh, let's reduce input. So basically, mm. let's use less fertilizer, which is one of the goal of the uh, farm to fork yeah, strategy. So it's basically. Uh, reducing the dependency mm. on uh, Belarus and Russia or anywhere that you or anywhere, that yeah, you get it from 
so I, in this and sense, the raw material as well. You know, and the raw material. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. I mean, in this sense, it's a bit of a, a way to cope with the fact that uh, you can reduce dependency uh, on uh, third countries. So again, there are several arguments. Uh, it's um, it's just uh, I would say um, an anticipation. Again, it's it's uh, it's just the entry of uh, a renewed uh, debate. Uh, but it's very interesting that the ministers proposed, uh, they put forward a proposal to the commission uh, to basically um, um, focus for 2022 on protein crops uh, instead of the sustainable uh, sustainable uh, land, sustainable arable, arable land or non-productive lands be, uh, to cope with the fact that we're going to have less uh, products for animal husbandry, basically, uh, from Ukraine. So mm -hmm. since this could have an impact on uh, animal feed, uh, growing protein crops could uh, could help uh, uh, to cope with that, with, uh, with this uh, uh, lack of um, imports from Ukraine. Um, so, yeah, th this is one of the newest things. So th this... Um, uh, this slight change in, but but it's again even the Normandy, the French minister and chair of the Agrifish Council, at the moment, uh, pointed out this is just for 2022. We're not we're not changing um, the you know the, the the focus of the farm to fork strategies and the agri food policies in the EU um, from uh, you know on on uh, we're not going to switch this focus from sustainability to, to productivity. But not only the EU has been affected by the Ukraine war, we also have neighboring countries who've been hit quite severely. Um, for example, Albania, uh, we've had news this week that in the face of sanctions imposed on Russia, bread could actually be off the menu. And with us, we have uh, Alice Taylor, who is in Albania, so Alice, could you explain to us a bit what this is all about? Yes, the Albanian bread shortage of 2022. Well, I shouldn't joke, but what you have to understand is bread is a, an integral part of the Albanian diet. Um, I've often joked before that Albanians will eat bread with pasta, with pizza, with, with things that you, we wouldn't normally eat bread with. So the fact that it's potentially going off the menu or will become unaffordable for people is quite serious because it's a core staple item in people's diets. Um, but not just bread, other products that are made with wheat as well. So uh, petalards, a kind of donut, um, flatbreads, uh, like tortilla type things. I mean, there's all sorts of various different products that are going to be impacted by this. And essentially what's happened is because of the conflict in uh, the Ukraine and various sanctions, Albania is going to be missing out on around 43% of its annual wheat consumption. Um, that's the amount it brings from Russia. And there's an additional 3.3% that it brings from the Ukraine. Now, the rest, apart from a very small amount which is generated locally, comes from countries which in turn import the product from Russia and Ukraine. So they're also going to be impacted. Um, in terms of domestic production, I mean, the government hasn't seriously invested in agriculture here at all. Um, so the, the, the 
the amount generated is very, very low and it's quite localized. So farmers will generate it for the local area rather than enough to feed the nation. Um, the other issue is we don't have any strategic reserves. So following the 2019 earthquake, which displaced thousands of people, then the COVID pandemic, which saw many families at risk of, of starvation and total poverty, um, the, the stores were depleted. Now, they haven't been filled up again and wholesalers only have 45 days worth left. Now, they have said, no, don't worry, we're not going to run out of wheat. We will be able to import it from elsewhere. Now, the problem is that importing it from elsewhere means higher costs at a time when costs are already significantly higher than before due to the fuel crisis and problems with transportation and supply chains. So Albania, I mean, this is a country where the minimum wage is 240 euros a month. The average person in Tirana earns about 550 and they are considered sort of middle class. So you have to understand that with a third of people living below, on or below the poverty line, an already existing increase in the cost of flour, which is used for loads of different items in the Albanian diet, and then the potential of even more increased prices, this is huge and um, this is going to have a significant effect. And this is what I mean, really, when I write it could be off the menu because many parties, many people are just not going to be able to afford it. So the last shipment of Russian wheat arrived this Wednesday. But uh, does Albania have any other alternatives to turn to? Um, we had the last shipment of Russian wheat arrive in the port of Duras yesterday. Now, this was around 3,000 tons, if I'm not mistaken, which is equivalent to 1% of the annual consumption. So we had 45 days worth now. We've probably got another week on top of that. So, I mean, the local associations involved in this have said they're sourcing other, other places to get it from, but prices are going to increase. Um, while this might be a minor issue in the big grand scheme of things, for your average Albanian family earning 300 euros a month, struggling to feed their family and send their kids to school and things, you know, this is huge. It's going to have a big impact. And we have uh, a forced this week. Uh, first time that we're doing something. Uh, I know that... Uh, now I'm creating a bit of uh, hype or uh, expectations. Well deserved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well deserved. Well deserved. Um, I mean, Julia is quite uh, new to the podcast, but I'm I'm the experienced one, and we never done this before. So what are we gonna do, Natasha? <laughs> we have some live on the ground reporting <laughs> for you. Very exciting um, from me, actually. Yeah. So uh, what are you reporting on? Good question. Let's find out. So I'm here at the Salon de l'Agriculture in Paris. And as you might be able to hear, there is a lot going on. I'm actually perched next to some sheep in the vain hope that they might uh, they might give me some noises. They're not being very obliging at the moment, but you never know. You never know your luck. I'm hoping for a bar or maybe a moon somewhere if I can find some cows. Um, so my first impressions are that there is a lot going on. So there's a cacophony of noises and smells. There's animals everywhere. Um, but it's also very impressive. I mean, this, is, this exhibition is absolutely huge. And it brings the farm right, uh, right to the capital of, uh, right to the heart of France's capital. 
And I'm not exaggerating when I say there are thousands of people here all coming to learn about farming and the agri-food system, which is quite heartening to see. I've spoken to people that have come from all over France, not just Paris, and for some of them it's a, it's a regular thing, for others it's their first time here, they're just interested to see what's going on. But one thing they all have in common is this really strong interest in food, in food culture and in you know, their heritage, which is honestly, honestly very refreshing. Um, and the other thing that, is, uh, that I've noted is that there are so many kids here. There are children everywhere. Um, there are tons of little games and activities for them. I, and I've heard kids really engaging in this. I've heard them speaking to scientists. I've heard them talking about water purification and fertilizers and um, all these really interesting discussions they're having as well as being able to get really up and close and personal with the animals, which, you know, for many of them, if they come from the city, maybe they've not had the chance to do this. Um, maybe they've not had the opportunity to really understand where their food comes from. Um, and so that's also really refreshing. Come on, give me a bah. What about you? Bah. Come on. Ugh, what a disappointment. Never work with animals or kids, they say. But I suppose the flip side of having this, um, you know, this very interactive experience and bringing the farm to a capital city is that, of course, you have all these animals that are suddenly find themselves um, in the Parc de l'Exposition à Paris, uh, not exactly their natural environment. You know, there's a lot of lights, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of people. Um, and I've seen a few animals getting quite stressed out, um, the worst of which is what I'm witnessing as we speak. There is a cow um, getting visibly distressed. Um, it's basically all the cows are kind of tethered together in this central section, um, all tethered onto like a pole. Um, and this cow is not happy at all, it's very clear. Um, you know, he's bucking his head around, making a lot of noise. The vets are around him, um, looking a little bit concerned. They're talking about cordoning off the area so that people can't, um, can't walk beside him. And I spoke to the vet about this and I asked him, um, you know, how stressful is this for the animals? Because this is clearly a, a strange experience for them. And he said, well, it depends on the animal. Normally they're trained for this. Um, clearly some get more stressed than others, but they, they take all the necessary uh, precautions to try and lower the, the stress as much as possible. Um, but it's definitely a flip side that I think is worth mentioning and worth considering um, when talking about this, uh, this salon. Something that's also interesting is the number of really big companies here. Um, so I was kind of surprised to see McDonald's here. I didn't expect to see McDonald's, I didn't expect to see Lidl, uh, Danone. Um, there are a lot of big industry players here, um, all of which are kind of talking about the merits of their different programs, carbon farming programs, regenerative agriculture, and programs to kind of... Oh, there's a cow coming towards me. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> the hazards of the reporting on the job. These cows are big. Whoa. They're handled very expertly as well. So hats off, hats off to them. Anyway, what was it saying? Yeah, so big industry players, all talking about carbon farming, all talking about regeneration, all talking about um, closing the gap between supermarkets and, uh, and producers. Um, I actually spoke with uh, one of the commons managers in uh, the commons manager of Lidl, um, who was telling me about their program to try and bring a, basically they have a program that uh, 
that means the farmers are the ones that get to set the prices for their products. So they say to Lidl, I can, I can live off this much, this is how much I need to survive, and they guarantee it for a number of years. It's interesting to see that industry players are interest, more and more interested in sustainability and also in closing this gap between producers and, uh, and the end point where consumers buy them. Um, it also does mean that it's... Uh, oh, there's another cow coming. Oh, right. Very beautiful cow, this one. Black and white, very beautiful. Um, yeah, it also does mean that it is actually surprisingly difficult to actually talk to farmers on stands. Like, the ones on the stands are not normally the farmers. The farmers are the ones you just kind of find mulling around here to, to have a look. Um, it's an interesting observation. So for this week's flavor of the week, we're taking a spoonful because we're talking about sugar. And I'm sure you know where sugar goes, uh, cakes, sweets, basically all kinds of delicious stuff. But where does it come from? Most of raw sugar comes from sugar canes, which are basically giant grasses that grow in top tropical climates like Brazil. Uh, but some of it is also made from beets, which also survive in chillier climates. And in fact, the EU is a big producer. Uh, which makes up about 50% of global production. And you could already eat this raw sugar, but maybe your taste is a little more refined, if I can say so, uh, in which case you might want to have it go through a refinery first where un unwanted tastes are removed. Because uh, I heard, for example, the beet sugar can taste of beet quite strongly if it's not refined. Interesting, interesting. And there's no doubt that um, sugar's delicious, sugar's fun. But of course, uh, we also need to talk about health because this week we have World Obesity Day and sugar is one of the main culprits here. So consumption of too much sugar has been linked with things like obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease or tooth problems. Um, and the European Food Safety Authority actually published new findings on this just this week. So according to them, uh, you should keep your intake of added sugar as low as possible. And the EU has plans to help reduce sugar intake. So as part of the flagship food uh, policy, the farm to fork strategy, the commission is planning to set up so-called nutrient profiles, basically rules that give maximum amounts of sugar and fat, things like that. So if a product exceeds them, it will not be allowed to be marketed as healthy. And the commission wants to table plans for this by the end of the year. And speaking of the, well, I'm supposed to say the, the boring stuff every week. Anyway, uh, does... So what do you mean it's boring? It's not boring. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the, 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 the funny stuff. I'm talking about the low all the time. <laughs> it's not boring, it's, it's nerdy. Yeah. Important. Okay, it's and important. It's, nerd. it's nerdy and important. It's nerdy and important. Okay, yeah. It's kind of up your street. Yeah, you, you want to insult me as well? I just, I just called you important and nerdy. And nerd. Yeah, but nerdy is not an insult. It's true. It's not uh, just an Just get insult. on and tell us about EU law, please. Yeah, 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 yeah. Indeed, uh, sugar was actually the last agricultural sector that the EU still uh, had production quotas for. Mm. Yeah, and they were only scrapped in 2017. Now this may rightfully sound like an absolute 
technicality and which it is, but it actually has important implications. See, important. Important and, and, and also narrow implications. <laughs> um, so basically product, production quotas uh, meant that every country uh, could only produce a certain amount of sugar in order to make sugar, uh, to, ma to make sure that sugar prices on the European market uh, don't drop too low. Uh, but this, of course, led to some um, issue. For instance, for, for a lot of time, um, they rightfully uh, complained, particularly at the WTO level, uh, that this regime stimulated the overproduction of sugar in Europe. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, the notorious uh, sugar mountains. Maybe mm. our colleagues from the UK <laughs> knows about this uh, British <laughs> anti-propaganda. Uh, and, and also, I mean, there was, you know, to get rid of the surplus, uh, they you basically offered the refineries export rebate, which is another word that... Uh, yeah, I told you, I told you you love this. The UK, yeah. Try and deny it, but look at you, you're grinning ear to ear I, talking I about this. You know that I like this kind of I stuff. Know. It's just that I don't want our, our uh, listeners to think that I'm the boring one. Just, em just embrace it, Gerardo. Embrace being I, I'm not going to do the you, the you part next week. Um, <laughs> at the same time, this also means that sugar prices are uh, basically free now to drop as production increases. And, and uh, EU sugar producers have also complained about uh, these. Uh, there was also uh, a new report from the European Association of Sugar Manufacturers uh, pointing out that uh, uh, eight beet sugar factories in the EU had to close uh, because they struggled, they struggled to adapt to a period of uh, record, record low sugar prices after uh, quotas was dropped. And the EU, on the other hand, is, uh, is happy with how the sector has developed since the change, uh, which was uh, highlighted in a report from uh, one month ago, actually, uh, where the Commission concluded that the sugar sector has, pro has proven to uh, be resilient uh, to the new system. And that's all from us this week. Uh, this week, the AgriFood podcast is produced by Euractis AgriFood team, Gerardo Fortuna, Natasha Hood, and Julia Dam, with the technical support of Evi Chiori. This podcast is also available on all major streaming platforms, including Amazon, Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest agriculture news from the EU. I'm Julia Dam. Thanks for listening and see you next week.